0: Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated leaders, stay motivated. Hello everyone, I am Corey Andrew Powell and I am joined today by Dr. Corey Yeager, Ph.D. Corey is a licensed marriage and family therapist, primarily servicing the African American community which is a very specific area of his study his work. Uh, His research centers on better understanding the plight of the African-American relationships, and he works diligently to facilitate the advancement of meaningful dialogue surrounding the subject of race and racism across the country. So, Dr. Corey Yeager, welcome to Motivational Mondays.
1: Well, Corey, thank you so much for having me, and I absolutely have to say I I love your name. Uh, I just got to tell you, I love your name.
0: I love yours too, sir. I mean, like we were just having a little banter off camera about the, that letter E in there. So uh, that's that's the only way to spell it, by the way, is the only way to spell the name. But we definitely appreciate you being here because for me specifically, well, I know you have this great new book. You know, it's How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have With Yourself. And so many things in that book I identify with. But I want to just begin by asking you, why did you write the book and what do you hope readers get out of it?
1: You know, I wrote the book, uh, I think, really as an opportunity to share with others. I think that we have so much going on in our world right now, especially right now, at this point in time in in the world. There seems to be so much chaos and lots of negativity. Um, and I think one of the things that we've lost is a focus on ourselves, who we really are. Right? We're showing up in the world as a version of who people tell us that we should be or what they think we should be, and we kind of follow that mold. So I thought it was um, the appropriate time to write the book to talk about bringing the focus back on the self. So that's why I wrote the book in the way I did. It's a larger conversation about how am I doing um, with 40 bite-sized conversations to hold with yourself to answer that broader question, how am I doing? Yeah. It's
0: funny too, you bring up how we are sort of have these expectancies on us that are put upon us by other people, and. I think so much of that today is driven by social media too,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: was just talking to a female entrepreneur who's really successful. And she said, Instagram will have you thinking you're going to open a business on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and Tuesday you like, you know, That's right. flinging dollar bills. And she was like, they don't tell you the hard work and they, you know, the, the clients that don't pay you and the billings and the all that right. So, uh, I do think that that contributes as well to this false sense of self that we're kind of having to contend with. Now, one other thing that's, I think, a really, really big contributor, you talk about how people have, I guess, there's a negative and positive conversation going on in our own heads. And I saw one of your Instagram posts on this, which I, I thought was really great because what people don't, I think, realize very often is the most negative voice we hear. Is the one that we are generating so talk a little bit about that
1: yeah and i think one of the things corey that is important for us to know in terms of how often we're talking to ourselves as i'm speaking right now you're having a conversation with yourself what question am i going to ask next do i like the way he's telling us that right so we're always talking to ourselves so if we added up all the people in our lives that had conversations they would not talk to us as much as we talk to ourselves, so that means we're the biggest impactor, the big biggest influencer on ourselves. We just don't tune into it. We're not we're not realizing that we're having these conversations with ourselves. So if you start to become aware of those conversations, we call them self talk in the psychological realm. You can figure out how negative you may be, and many times if you tune in. We're pretty negative with ourselves. And one thing that I tell people all the time, if you took those, all those negative conversations you were having with yourself and re- transcript them out and handed them to someone and said, Hey, read this to me. Would you stay friends with them? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't allow someone to say you're stupid and you're just so fat and you can't lose the weight. You wouldn't allow anyone to just say that to you all the time. But yet, and still, we do it to ourselves all day long. Um, so the concept of being a, becoming aware of that self-talk, and then changing that negative to more of a positive conversation. You don't have to do it all overnight, but little by little, start to become aware of how negative that may be and change some of that and just catch yourself. I had someone, one of my clients talked about catching those negative thoughts like with a mitt, like a glove, and through, asking themselves, does this thought pay for me? Does this help me or push me forward? If the answer is no, I throw it away and I replace it with something more positive. Mm. Um, So I love that. I love that analogy. And I think it's helpful.
0: So in that same regard, though, there is another dynamic, I think, at play there because you do specifically, I mean, not only, but you do primarily work with the African-American community in that regard. And how much of those negative voices would you say are actually us reinforcing what has been put upon us? by society because of stereotypes and who we are and who we are perceived to be. Doesn't that change our dynamic a little bit?
1: Yeah, so we we are swimming in a cesspool of racism. We come into this world as Black and brown folks into a cesspool of, of race and racism negativity. And if you swim in that long enough, you'll ingest some of that. And if you ingest enough of it, you will start to become partially uh, Deeply believing that that's just the case. That's just who we are. uh, It's how we live. And that's just, and so I think over time that eats away at us and we don't really even realize it because it slowly eats away. It doesn't quickly try to take over. It's slowly day to day, little things, little microaggressions, little things that eat away at us consistently, I think are really, really key. Uh, for that negativity. So we have to recognize that. So, okay, let's, first of all, do I recognize that I may be taking in some, ingesting some of this thought? And if so, where's it playing out in my life? And I don't want that anymore. So now you go about the the process of unlearning. So if you can learn something, you can unlearn it. So unlearning that process, that's not easy though. It's not easy because people are not going to stop saying, well, black folks are this and y'all do this and that. They're not going to stop it. So it's going to continue to be to be held. Those conversations will still be held, yeah. but we may recognize them differently as we move forward.
0: Yeah, I told a friend recently, I said, if anybody wants proof that Black people really are not the angry you know, violent thugs that sometimes media makes us out to be just watch any of the Karen videos on like Instagram in, w- in which someone gets and you know, calls the cops on a black person or just all these bizarre scenarios that they have put African-Americans and the guy watching birds in Central Park. And, my- and in most every case, the black person who's sort of like the victim of this situation is just like, kind of like, what is happening? I don't understand what, you know, the retaliation you would think might be something that would be more Expected, but in most of those cases, you just see us kind of going. Can we just watch birds, please, and be left alone? That's all we're trying
1: to I, do. So, Corey, the one one thing that I say, and I, this is a tough thought, that if we are asking ourselves well, what's going on, we're behind. We're we're missing something because we live in a country where four hundred years of history tell us a story about every moment that we will engage with folks that do not look like us. So if I'm saying, well why are they? You know why they are. Yeah, so if you so we know this. We almost move in our lives expecting this. Okay, what they gonna do? I wanna put myself in a situation and here they are. And I think that may be the misnomer. We may be just doing something in Central Park bird watching and then the situation comes and finds us. Well, why do they see us in such a negative light? Oftentimes mm-hmm. it is to protect themselves. That I want to see them, if I can see them as negative, if I can see them as so sexualized and see, as though, so, so um, aggressive, then it allows me that nurturing aspect and others will take care of me, right? I think there's so many aspects mm-hmm. to it. It's sad, but it is the harsh reality we face on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And on that same note, you know, and I won't pull you into this rabbit hole because it's just, it's, it will never end, but I will briefly touch on Kanye West, the controversy that's going on now, only to say that in that same idea of what you just said, there's this debate going on, right? In black Twitter, if you will, where there's like, okay, uh, some black people are saying, oh, you guys want to cancel him because of what he said. And then other black people are saying, well, we were trying to Call this out a long time ago before it got to this point.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I think that there's this sort of um, accountability to almost what you're talking about. Like we have to recognize when there are dynamics at play that are harmful to us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that does mean also holding your own people accountable. That's my take on the N word and rap lyrics, for example. I get it, but I really would prefer. <laughs> that that word not be used in rap lyrics because it's hard then to justify why you'd be upset about it if someone calls you one. Right. So we're almost creating those sort of blurred lines, if you will. And it makes it difficult, I think, for society to figure out how to navigate that.
1: So I think you say something that the accountability and and this difficulty in navigating and maneuvering through the potholes of life for especially for folks of color, that every day we almost have to wake, look around, put our armor on, armor up to just be able to walk through life. That mm. so You can't just walk out your door without your, you better armor up, almost expecting battles to come that will be rooted in the fact that your pigment is dark. The battle's not coming just because the person doesn't like you. The battle is coming because you look the way you look. Um, So how do you put your armor on? Sadly, that we have to move through this world thusly. Um, But it is once again, Corey, the harsh reality that we face. That's not going anywhere today or tomorrow or in my son's generation. It's going to still be present. So how do we how do we find ways in which to deal with it and maneuver through it?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, that ties into also this idea of trauma, which you talk about as well. The unresolved trauma. And I've been so fascinated by that because I've gone through that. I actually, um, years ago, just, just like I decided I was just not having a good time in New York and I was having difficulties and I was, um, making a lot of bad choices, if, if you will, years, years and years ago. And I said, I need to go to a therapist. I, I knew that I needed to talk to someone. There was something bothering me, I didn't know what. And therapy allowed me to. A, a good therapist, thank goodness, mm-hmm. allowed me to really understand that I had been carrying—I mean, at least twenty-eight years at that point—of mm-hmm. unresolved trauma. Yes, that I had never spoken about really to anyone in depthly, or and it was holding me back. I was stuck because I was sort of trying to fill a void, right? To yes. to get through it, which leads to manifesting to bad behaviors, and excess, and. Uh, and once I identified that, it changed everything. But then you add on a layer of ancestral trauma.
1: Ooh, come on. Which now. I
0: didn't even know about until I interviewed someone on Motivational Mondays, a black woman who studies that. And I could not believe that dynamic was there as well. So talk a bit about the unresolved trauma and the
1: role that plays in a systemically difficult society. So what we what we can recognize, and it's what you went through is if we have unresolved trauma let's say at 12 years old we have a traumatic event what that 12 year old will do is start to set up coping mechanisms to protect themselves mm-hmm. right say, they don't know they're doing it but they'll set things up so for instance if they went through a traumatic event and they don't want people to get real close to them they'll begin to be shy so my now my new thing is to be shy right I'll be shy everywhere I go I just kind of people know me as very shy But before the trauma, you really weren't that. But now it's a coping mechanism. Started at 12. Now you're 42 and you're still being shy. Does it still serve you? Maybe not. Right. Mm. So how do you figure out how to go back to that 12 year old version of self and say, hey, I don't need you to protect me in that way anymore? I appreciate that you did that because it did help me make it through that that time period. But now at 42, I don't really need that any longer. So we have to re- get re-engage and like you did, re get re-engaged and in, in, in touch with those moments and then have a recognition, I don't want that anymore and we can move on. So we then talk about the cultural trauma and um, generational trauma, I think is extremely important, especially in the African-American community. So I think that we must distinguish between culture and the remnants of trauma. And by that, I mean this, We go back 400 years that we were, as slaves, beaten to be disciplined. But if you go back before that, before 1619, back into Africa, we weren't beating our kids to discipline them. So all of a sudden we learned that beating process in slavery. But if you come jump forward 400 years till today, people would say, Black folks beat because that's cultural. That's what we do. Mm, wow. Oh, so we just whip our kids. That's what we've always done. No, it's not. So what it is is a remnant of that trauma that is now showing up as culture. It's crazy. Mm, we wow. see it as cultural in everyone, not only the black community, the white community says, oh, it's cultural. Those white guys, those black men and women just beat their kids. That's what they do. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. So now we're we've been sold a bill of goods that that's part of our culture and it's not. So where uh, there are other spaces that we need to investigate to say, all right, is this cultural or is this a remnant of trauma from the history of slavery? Um, I think that's work that we have to do that needs to be done because differentiating and distinguishing in that space can be free. I don't need to just beat my kids. Because every granny and them did and granny and uh, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because it's like we accept it as an excuse, too. Like, oh, well, I, that's what grandma did to us when we was a kid. I'm like, well, does that mean it was
1: okay? I don't, want, <laughs> I don't think that means it was good. Grandma and them were sharecroppers coming out of slavery, trying to make it every day with the threat of death by KKK when they walked outside of their homes. That was a different time and era. My babies grew up in a, in a suburban household and had all kinds of stuff and went to school and now are, are in, getting degrees. Why I got to beat them? I don't need to beat them. Right. So how do we understand that better? And I think we have to have conversations about it. If we don't talk about it, we'll just keep carrying on that generational trauma. I'm beating the kids and my sons. If you, If I beat them, they'll go have kids and they'll beat their kids. Yeah, that's not that's not a good enough excuse.
0: No, it's definitely not these days. I mean, I think there's just other options, but um, you know, it, like you said, there is a blurred line of culture. I mean, if, if we were to have this conversation with uh, many, uh, you know, old folk, as we say, the black mm-hmm. southerners mm-hmm. who ruled by the belt yep. or the or the switch, yep. the cherry, the tree, the tree branch. Yep. Um, yes. you know, it is definitely something that at this point has just sort of been an, an indoctrination. Yes, um to right. our lives. I, and I had not considered that that idea that it was sort of a learned activity.
1: And it's know? a carryover. So so much so much of maybe how we see the world, our our being in the world as African Americans, is rooted in the trauma of slavery. We have to realize that when I mean, we just think about financial institutions. I mean, we are in terms of, of bias and financial well-being we're so far behind we lag so far behind all the indicators tell us we are multiple multiple generations behind Mm -hmm. and then if you're so far behind that we know that's a remnant of trauma oh absolutely and and then how do you fix that you just you just keep renting and you don't you don't create generational wealth and you don't have anything to hand off to the next generation and it perpetuates itself generation after generation
0: Right. That is, I think, what is the biggest travesty of this movement in some parts of the country to not discuss the history of slavery in America, because as anyone who I know, we don't want white people today to feel guilty about it. We know that you can't be blamed for the sins of your father. we, We understand that. But what we want is the honest teachings of what happened so that the current generation will understand why Come on now. there's a disparity between, you know, incarcerations between whites and blacks or why there's, you know, certain neighborhoods look a certain way they do with very limited resources. Like if you don't explain that, those are, as you just said, remnants of
1: yep.
0: right, redlining and, you know, we can yep. go on, we can go on. Yeah. But if you don't teach that, and I think it's such a disservice to white kids and black kids if you don't teach it.
1: It's a disservice to America. You said a couple of things that I think are really important, um, that we don't want our white peers to feel guilt. But we have to step back a moment on that and recognize that guilt is always self-imposed. Ain't nobody putting no guilt on nobody. If I'm feeling guilty, it's because I said, oh man, I didn't call them. I said I was going to call them and I didn't call them. I'm feeling guilty. No one put that on me. I felt that guilt. It was rooted in something but it was self-imposed. So that recognition I think is critically important. The other thing, and you were, you were touching on it, I, let me put a language on it that I utilize, that before you can reconcile, you must first have truth. You cannot reconcile without truth-telling, mm-hmm. right? So in this country, we have yet to have real truth-telling about race and the ills of racism. We have not done that. So if you go to Nazi Germany, to Germany where the Nazi stuff occurred, They, If you fly into Germany and get off, they're going to tell you the story of the ills of Hitler. We hated him. He made a mistake. People followed him. They shouldn't have. They're going to speak about it. They're not going to be scared to talk about it. They're going to tell truth. If you go to South Africa, you get off the plane, they're going to talk about apartheid and the ills of apartheid. But in this country, we'll say, don't talk about that, man. Just be quiet. Y'all need, they just need to pull themselves somebody bootstraps, man. So what we have done with race, Corey, is decontextualize race. If you can take context away, it's easy to say, well, they should just work harder. This is a country where rugged individualism, you should just work harder. That's decontextualizing race. Put context back on it. Talk about the years of slavery. Then from that, go into Jim Crow and all these systems and Mm -hmm. institutions that were set up to hold us into spaces that were unkind. That is contextualization. But many times you don't want to do that because that's tough. But that's that truth telling.
0: I do also think, too, it's funny the way you just put that. I wonder if, you know, many of the gatekeepers, so to speak, they really rely on that dynamic there because they can call upon that when they need to use it politically or, you know, rally up people who may be into separatism or whatever their situation may be. So, It would actually weaken their ability to do that if you really just taught the public the history. And then they wouldn't be able to weaponize that when they need to call upon it to rally their base, right? It's an interesting sort of dynamic.
1: I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think you're 100% right. mm, Wow. Well, okay. So moving
0: from that, though you know, we talk about the trauma with black people, ancestral trauma. One way I got through mine was going to therapy. One other conversation I have often with black people who've survived things, who've gone to therapy though, they all had the same thing in common, which was that there was a stigma attached to it when they were trying to maybe talk to their family about going to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I know that we sort of, as a, as a people, we sort of had that stigma where we don't really talk to therapy. I know my grandparents used to be like, I ain't gonna tell no white man my problems. You know, yep. they were, you know, yes. old Southern people, but it's, but and I get that that's, you know, they were born in 1929, it's a whole other, you know, I get it. Yep. Uh, but today though, what do you think about that today? Do you find that that stigma is still there or are more black people open to the idea of getting therapy?
1: No, the stigma persists, it, it is persistent. And to some degree, I'm a therapist, but I could, you can could almost say, well, almost rightfully so. We are not trusting of the systems that white society has set up. So therapy almost is seen as a westernized approach and made the therapeutic modalities that I learned in my graduate t- courses were all by white men. So if you see our grandparents and and those folks, they're not going to be, tr- I'm not trusting that. I'm not going to lean into that. I don't want that. And we'll go to church and we're going to pray about this and we're going to shut up and stop talking about it and just go to work and just shut up and it'll go away. That's really what has always been discussed in all of our households. But what we know is that doesn't fix the issue. It's still, it, and not only does it not fix the issue, if you just leave it to to be on the side, it will fester itself. Mm-hmm. It will get bigger and bigger and you you will try to avoid it and sweep it under the rug. But now the rug is a pile that's so big you can't even walk in a room any longer, (laughs) right? So I I would say that the stigma persists. Um, I think that we are beginning in this new generation because France Fanon, a philosopher in the 1900s, he spoke about generations saying that each generation has a mission. May not be spoken, but each generation has a mission and they will either, either uphold it or deny it. One way or the other. I believe that the generations behind me, I'm 53, my sons and and the kids that are coming up now almost have a mission that says, no, y'all going to talk about mental wellness. We no, we're going to talk about this and y'all can say there's a stigma. We're going to figure out how to get support, though, which I think is the first time in the African-American community in this country that we've almost had a generation that says, no, no, no. Granny them I love y'all, but I'm about to go get this therapy. Mm. That I can still love you, Granny, and go get this therapy. Well, those are some parting words of wisdom, sir,
0: Dr. Corey Yeager. And uh, wow, this is really amazing because I was so looking forward to it because I... I sort of felt like I had some things to sort of, you know, have some therapy to get off my chest with another Corey. So, (laughs) so, and I knew you'd understand, you know, so thank you for engaging me and, and thanks for being here today with us on motivational Mondays. We really appreciate your time today.
1: It was an absolute blast. Thanks so much, Corey.
0: Thank you for listening to motivational Mondays presented by the national society of leadership and success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.